night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. It's a Tuesday night. We've got a really spectacular one for you. You know how we kind of steer this show through a bunch of different topics. We, uh, we, we cover a lot of really, really cool things on the program. Some of them are more mystical than others. Tonight, we're going to talk about some real-life stuff. It's going to be quite fascinating, though. In fact, you know my love for popular music, particularly if I, if, if I had to ask you who my favorite artists were musically, you would be able to tell me, I'm sure, because I've talked about them often. The Beatles, Elvis Presley topped the list, of course. And we're going to be talking about both of those tonight. Our guest, uh, Jillian Gar, has written 17 books, many of them about popular music icons. And we're going to cover a few of these. One of her books is about uh, women in rock and roll. It's called She's a Rebel. And then we're also going to talk about Return of the King, which is about Elvis Presley's great comeback. And then also the third of the three rock and roll books we'll spend some time with is Entertain Us, The Rise of Nirvana. We'll also get some Beatles discussion in there as well. And then we're going to start the conversation off talking about Vampira. Or better yet, her real name, the actress's name is uh, Mela Nurmi. And uh, her story is quite tragic. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. But we have so much to cover tonight. We're going to move pretty quickly. So, uh, again, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here as we kick off the first live program of this week. And I will say that as I'm launching the other show, um, I'm going to have to do uh, some abbreviated uh, live shows during the week for this program just because there's only so many hours in the day and launching a new show takes a lot of work and uh, we're doing all that work here. So I appreciate your patience as we launch that one, keep this one uh, interesting and entertaining, but um, also have to rely on some classic episodes during the course of the week on occasion as well. So anyway, um, with that, make sure you subscribe to our channels. Now I'm going to throw all three of them at you. Now we've got YouTube and Twitch for this program. You can find those by searching for JV Johnson on either of the channels. Please subscribe. And if you're interested in the other show that we're doing, which is a political discussion, you can go to the independence gang on YouTube. That's the only place that's airing right now. Although, although there is a podcast version of both shows, in fact, and they can be found by searching your favorite podcast platform. But the Independence Gang is on YouTube. That show is live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights at this point at 9 p.m. Eastern. And we talk about the issues of the day. And there's plenty, plenty going on to talk about. That's for sure. Um, okay, so I see some people in our chat room saying that YouTube's acting a little strange. I'm not sure if that's, uh, it seems to be okay on our end, but you never know with YouTube. You never know. Maybe because I said the word politics, maybe it's doing something. Who knows? But either way, um, let's go to break and let's get our guest on the line with us so we can begin the conversation. Because as I said, we have a lot to cram into this chat. There's going to be a lot of very interesting discussion. And I'm going to geek out a little bit. I'll be a little fanboyish as we start talking about some of these things. But it's going to be 
a tremendous amount of fun. Looking forward to it. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest tonight, Jillian Gar, has written 17 books about topics ranging from She's a Rebel, which is the history of women in rock and roll, to Return of the King, Elvis Presley's Great Comeback, and many, many others. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Jillian, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Well, it's fun to be here. It is. You know, I have to tell you, because I was just, I don't even know where it came up. I think I was just scrolling through Facebook and someone had posted an article that you had written about uh, Vampira, or as her real name is, um, Maylee uh, Nermi. And, and I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because it's an odd, odd name. But I, I'm reading about Vampira and I'm such a fan of the Ed Wood movies and I'm a horror film fan. And of course, Vampira's character is the stuff of legends. And I'm reading through this. I'm like, we really need to talk about this on the program. <laughs> so then I did a little research on you and realized how deep your work is and how many uh, fan fantastic and interesting books you've written about other things that I have a tremendous in, interest in, like Elvis, the Beatles, rock and roll in general. And man, it, I, I can't believe we haven't uh, crossed paths already, but it's so great to have you here to talk about this stuff because it's so much stuff um, that I have a fascination for and an interest in, and I know our audience does too. So this is great. Oh, good. I uh, think we're set up for a great talk. Yeah, I want to know um, kind of how you got my dream job. Um <laughs> no, if I had to define the dream job, I mean, I've, I love what I do here. Don't get me wrong. However, you get to write about some really cool things. How'd that work? How did you find that path? Let's see. How did that happen? Well, let's see. Kind of, kind of the old-fashioned way by, uh, you know, putting in the the years of work. Um, I guess whenever I discovered something knew that I enjoyed like a, a book or a movie or a song or something. I, I always wanted to tell other people about it. And so that, that came through writing. I wanted to, you know, share my, my knowledge about this new thing that I'd discovered. Uh, so that was always, that was always an interest of mine. And, um, let's see, initially, I guess, uh, this would be back in, in Seattle. And I just, there were a lot of, of small free publications around. We don't really live in that kind of world anymore. But uh, there would be all kinds of free publications you could pick up. 
at you know coffee shops and record stores and places like that. And they were always looking for people to write for them. And a lot of these uh, magazines or newsletters were pretty short-lived. Maybe they wouldn't even last a year. And they certainly wouldn't pay you, but uh, you could write an article for them about something. And then you had a clip so that when you approached another outlet to write for them, you could say, oh, well, and this is the kind of thing I write. Then you had a clip to show them. So you kind of did those those first few things for little money, and then hopefully it, it would grow into more money, which which it did. Maybe, you know, if, if you had my income, you probably wouldn't think it was quite as much of a dream job. <laughs> but, but there are the things of, you know, not having to be in an office from 8 to 5 and the dress code, and you have your morning break and your lunch break, and, you're, you know, it's not as regimented as that. So, so that part's um, a freedom. And, uh, well, let's see, I guess things really started turning around uh, when I began working at the Rocket Magazine, which was, it started out as a music monthly in Seattle. This was in the 80s. And at first I was a a one-day-a-week volunteer, uh, which meant answering the phones and doing other things that no one else wanted to do, which one one was quite interesting, and this sort of shows how things would spread at that time. Uh, there were a lot of alternative papers in most, well, in every major, every major city, I think, in the country at that time probably had an alternative weekly, or in our case, we were a monthly. Right. And so my job was to write to all of them, like the Chicago New Reader, I think, was one, uh, with a copy of The Rocket, and say, we're a alternative paper in Seattle, and would you put us on your mailing list? We will put you on our mailing list. So we got on the mailing list of all these alternative publications around the country, and they were on ours, too, which it was kind of fun. I would go to New York for the New Music Seminar, which was an industry gathering, and I would wear a Rocket T-shirt, and it was surprising the number of people that would say, oh, the Rocket, yeah, we <laughs> like the Rocket, which you know is, is amazing to hear when you're in Manhattan on the other side of the country. And, you know, this wasn't maybe at its peak. Actually, we, we did get up to about 90,000 copies an issue, but mm-hmm. certainly in those days we weren't near 90,000. And most of that was concentrated in the Northwest. So eventually I rose the, in the ranks of, of the rocket and became a senior editor there eventually. And how things changed was that uh, one time I wrote an article about Michelle Schacht because she was coming to town to do a performance. And it was in the middle of one of the usual women in rock type of stories, which they don't seem to do as much now. But every five years, they'd do a story about, oh, look, there are women in rock music. And my article, at that time, let's see, it was the acoustic people. You had, uh, you know, the Indigo Girls and Michelle Schacht and Suzanne Vega and mm. Tracy Chapman. Remember all of them? Yeah, They all came out and, oh, there's women in rock. And <laughs> And I, I wrote this article saying, well, yeah, there's all these women playing a similar sort of style, but, you know, women have always been in rock music. I mean, uh, Big Mama Thornton recorded Hound Dog before Elvis did. That's right. And that was in the article. And an editor at Seal Press, which was a book publisher then based in Seattle, they've since been swallowed up by one company after another, um, they approached me about doing She's a Rebel, which was initially just going to be an anthology, an anthology of uh, different writings about women and rock. But as we worked on it, the editor thought, well, maybe we should just do a history and have one person do it, which would be easier. 
Ruth Van and Anthology. So that's how that got started. I mean, that was the first book, and that came out in 92. So it took a long time for the others to come along. That didn't start happening until this century. But it was just kind of building on, on what came before. I mean, also in, in the 90s, things got crazy in Seattle. Nirvana exploded and Seattle exploded, and it was just kind of a busy couple years there. But uh, that, was, that was how it led to writing these books. And we're going to talk about all those things. Um, and it's such a fascinating uh, story. And I, I kind of sympathize or empathize or whatever the word is, because when I got into radio, um, I stopped. I was riding a moped to high school and I stopped by the local radio station, went in and said, I, I want to work here. I don't even need to be paid. I will take out your garbage. So kind of what you did, right, just to get your foot in the door, because you knew that there was there was something there you wanted to learn. And um, and that's what I did. And obviously you were you were quite successful at it. And I like to think that I I made my way through it anyway. Um, But it's that kind of dedication to something that can can make you uh, do that Uh, volunteer, whatever it happens to be, knowing that down the road, you know, this is the path that's going to get you to uh, to a point where you're going to be able to express yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um. I have to take a kind of a, a side journey here just a minute, because one of the things I noted uh, in reading up about you is this cocktail uh, that oh. you have concocted. <laughs> this is important stuff, Jillian. <laughs> what is this cocktail? And tell me how I, I'm going to be able to uh, make one for myself to sample it. Um, oh, let's see. I should set up the uh, let me look up and find the article so I can. <laughs> Exactly how I put that in. Oh, now the computer isn't turning on. Come on. As oh. you as you're looking for that, I find it funny because I looked up the the name of you know the original name of the cocktail, and the the entry I found said there are a jillion recipes, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of appropriate for what we're talking <laughs> about too tonight. So that's kind of funny. But anyway, yeah, tell us a story oh. about this. Well, let's see. So I, I guess it started some years ago. I um, I'm a fan of uh, these Tennessee Williams films. Like, in fact, I was just watching one with a friend this last weekend, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and uh, Sweet Bird of Youth, Suddenly Last Summer, that's a crazy one, and Night of the Iguana. Uh, one thing I really like about them is that, you know, they're all about this kind of repressed sexuality. No one can really talk about sex openly, especially in the earlier films. And Sweet Bird of Youth, they say a little more, but, you know, they, they couldn't talk about sex openly, not even explicitly, just kind of openly. Like you couldn't say someone was homosexual. Imagine that. You right. couldn't even say that much. Yeah. So you had to talk around it. You had to hint and imply and sort of uh, give a different emphasis to your words to get your point across. And I just find that stuff fascinating. Um, so in Night of the Iguana, Richard Burton plays this defrocked priest who is leading tours in Mexico. And he's, his tour group is not going well, so he seeks refuge at a hotel that was run by his great friend. He finds his friend is dead, and the wife, Ava Gardner, a widow, I guess, is, is there, and she takes him in. And she's always running around serving everybody rum cocos. And uh, so I began wondering, well, what is that? What is this drink, the rum cocoa? And I had looked it up, and I couldn't find any recipes. So I thought, well, you know, I will have to create my own. So I did a, a big thing for a website not too long ago called Wine and Whiskey Globe. Um, that's part of the Globe family of, of websites. They have Book and Film Globe and um, Rock and Roll Globe, and, and you get the idea. So um, 
Yes, I made one. I made variations on on a rum cocoa. I thought, you know, rum and coconut. So let's see. A traditional one I did was a light rum, coconut water, squirt of lime, and a rum dark rum float. My problem is that I haven't found a coconut water that I like. Mm. Uh, I, I just don't enjoy the taste. One time, uh, this will sound glamorous, I was, I was in Tahiti and I was on this tour, and the tour guide cracked open a coconut, and we drank from the nut, the fresh nut, and it was delicious. It is not like what you get in the stores. Really? I don't care how organic it is. Um, but, but, so I found, I found I had better results in, I call this, I give this the name of the Kokomo, Kokomo Rum Cocoa, and I used a coconut rum club soda, and the dark rum float. Or you can use uh, coconut rum, coconut milk, and the dark rum float. Oh, my producer is making notes so that we can try this at some point. Because... Well, I think I have your email. I'll just send you the address. Oh, yeah, that'd be, could, that'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the story's up on, um, on uh, Wine and Whiskey Globe. <laughs> right, that'd be terrific. Um, let's spend just a couple minutes talking about Vampira or uh, Mela Nurmi here a little bit, because you did write the article, but the article was talking about uh, Mela's um, niece, right, who who discovered some of her belongings after her death in 2008? Yes, yes. Um, and I believe it's Mila. Yeah, okay, Aunt Mila. Yeah, that was yeah. how she said it. Um, Sandra Nimi, because that was uh, Mila's original name, Nimi. And... Um, she had got to know her aunt over the years a bit, but they kept falling out of contact. And um, after her aunt's death, she was clearing out her apartment and found that she had left all these scraps of paper with her life story on them, just everywhere. It was, she said, you know, she found them like in the pocket of, of clothing or in a picture frame or, you know, stuck in a drawer or something. She said that the, all these scraps filled two garbage bags. Wow. And she thought, I have to do something with this. So uh, she wrote the book Glamour Ghoul, uh, the, the story of Myla Nurmi. And, uh, oh, it's quite fascinating. I mean, I knew nothing about her except that she'd been Vampira. Um, and, and that was all I knew. But, you know, she, she had quite this remarkable life. A sad life, too, I think, because uh, she never really made much money after the Vampira days dried up. And she had this self-destructive impulse that seemed to implode the good opportunities that did come her way. But, but she doggedly stuck to her own path and uh, even going through some, you know, very hard times. Um, and the book, sorry, I got lost my thoughts there, but... Um, it comes also with this fantastic twist. Sandra told me she was having a hard time writing the book. She'd never written a book before, so so this is understandable. And it took her 12 years, and the final push finally came when they found Mila's long-lost son, because Mila oh. claims to have had an affair with Orson Welles. Right. And uh, she got pregnant as a result of this and had a son whom she gave up for adoption, and she never knew what happened to him. And Sandra, all these years later, uh, had given her daughter one of those DNA testing kits. And she found a match with someone, and it turned out to be Mila's son. Wow. 
<laughs> now this would have this would have been the son uh, of Mila and Orson Welles. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and that's has that been verified? I mean, has this all been checked not out? Not the Orson Welles part, not okay. yet. Okay. He's he's definitely Mila's son. That part was established through the DNA match. Okay. And uh, yeah, his name's David Putter, and he lives on in Vermont and. He was an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont, so a lawyer. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so she called him right away, and uh, they're talking, and he says, do you know who my birth mother is? Because he knew he was adopted, and even his adopted mother had died when he was a child. So uh, what she described him as being like this motherless waif. And <laughs> do you know who my birth mother is? And she said, do I know who your birth mother is? You know, I can tell you her name, and all you have to do is put that in Google, and you'll get all these amazing results that <laughs> that come up. Wow. And he he was just astonished. Yeah, he had no idea? No, he had no idea. Uh, he's 75, or he's in his 70s, I don't know, 75. So, um, yeah, that was... <laughs> but now he, now he has this new family. <clears throat> and Sandra told me that he has reached out to the Orson Welles family. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and they're not discouraging, so mm. who knows? Wow. Maybe they'll be able to do a test yeah. and confirm that side as well. <laughs> That's an amazing part of the story. And I saw reference to, to, the, to the son or the, the child that uh, she claims to have had with Orson Welles. And, 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 but I, I just, my question would have been, you know, did they, could they ever locate him? And the fact that they did, that is amazing by itself. Uh, we can't spend a whole lot of time talking about this and be able to have time for the other topics we want to get to. But I, just for people who are, you know, trying to figure out what uh, Jillian and I are talking about here, um, <laughs> Myla is better known as Vampira. And give us just, you know, because there's really just a snapshot of her life. Uh, although it really set the tone of her life and, f- and how she's remembered today. But tell us what Vampire was all about. Well, Vampire was uh, Milo's creation sort of based on a, on a Halloween costume that she wore when she was living in Los Angeles and had gone to a Halloween costume contest and won. And this producer saw her there, and he wanted to hire her to be a horror movie host which they didn't have at the time. This is the 50s. This is 1954. And that wasn't the cliche that it is now. Though I don't think there's as many around now. Right. And so, so, so she sexed up the character that she'd done at this costume ball. What I hadn't realized until reading this book was that she wore her dress backwards. She had a tight, <laughs> tight-fitting black dress. She put it backwards so that it was lower down in front and the zipper was in front. And she decided to be a sexy vampire. So what would, what else would a sexy vampire have? She you know the tight black dress, and she had the long black hair and long fingernails. And uh, she was obsessively worried about her weight. So she dieted down so she had this impossibly thin waist. And then she cinched it so it looked even thinner. Had to hurt. It had oh, yeah. to hurt. Well, you know, they're thinking it may have contributed to health problems she had. Wow. <laughs> Later in life. I mean, I don't know what it was. I, th- I think I saw a documentary about her, and she was telling her story in this documentary, and I don't remember where I saw it or what it was called. But she, I think she gave the dimensions, her dimensions at some point, and it was something like a 14-inch waist or something. Yeah, yeah, very, that, very disturbing. It was crazy. I mean, it's disturbing to look at. Yeah. So, so there's a few clips that survive of her, and and the whole thing was that she would introduce the horror movie and come out and be scary, but she was also kind of 
sly and sexy and, and uh, very black-humored, you know, unpleasant dreams type of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and a little some campy, clip, too. There's a few clips oh. online where you can see her at the beginning of the show coming down, you know, the cobwebbed hall and coming right towards the camera and then erupting in this loud scream. Yeah, and she was a little campy, and I think that footage you're referring to, I think there's only like a minute and 16 seconds of footage that survives from her work as Vampira. Yeah, I've seen I looked around on YouTube later, and there, there are some other things where she made a, a guest appearance on this comedy show at the right, time yep. that went on longer. And she's dressed as the Vampira character, but she's not seen introducing the movie. But that also gives you, gives you some and ideas. Of, and, of course, she was also um, noted for being a silent character, but a character nonetheless in Ed, Ed Wood's film Plan 9 from Outer Space. She may be just as well-known from that as she was from doing the Vampira character, although the character in Ed Wood, she dressed kind of like Vampira. Yeah, I think, you know, I think because of Plan, it's because of Plan 9, really, that we know her now. Uh, because I, I think, especially because there's so little footage of, Vampira doing the show, I think that might have just been forgotten over time. But I first heard about her because of Plan 9. I had the Golden Turkey Awards book and read about Plan 9 from Outer Space and that. Yep. And so I wanted to see it. And what? They did three books in that series. And uh, then, you know, that brought the film to more attention and more people became interested in it. And I think that led, you know, obviously to the, the Tim Burton film. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I think that probably introduced her to, well, the later generations. Well, that, and although they probably didn't know it, many people still don't realize it, but Elvira, um, you know, Cassandra Peterson's character, Elvira, um, was very, if you ask Cassandra, not very much based on <laughs> Vampire, but if you asked uh, Myla, very much based on her Vampire character. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, Myla sued Vampire Elvira, um, but she didn't have the finances to to pursue the suit. No, and um, you know they discuss that in in the book somewhat, but not in too great a detail because Sandra wasn't in touch with her aunt then. And though she visited her around the time the suit was going on, Mila said nothing about it. So uh, you know I would really have to know a lot more about the legal points. Um, I guess I had thought the sort of the sort of look as as a sexy vampire. I thought that was sort of a classic look mm-hmm. that wasn't trademarked. But had, did it start with her? If it started with her, maybe she would have a claim. I don't really feel I have enough. Well, the, um, the funny I know thing, it also drew from the Morticia Adams character, that's and that what I, predated yeah. all of them. That's so. what that's what I was going to say. Those those Adams cartoons uh, uh, predated all of that, so they kind of both drew from that. Um, Mila died penniless, basically. She lived in squalor in a, I don't even know if you could consider it an apartment from what I understand. Um, You know, she had some friends that would help her get along. But you you said it early on in this discussion. You said she was kind of her own worst enemy in a lot of ways. She had some very, I guess, a little bit eccentric, but certainly strict rules that she lived her life by. And if you crossed those, it didn't matter what the cost was. She didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, and you know, well, I didn't. I talked to Sandra a long time, and not everything got in uh, in the story. But in talking to her and other things in the book, I wonder if if she didn't just suffer from 
say, well, it sounds like she suffered from depression at times, yeah. mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandra told me, and this isn't in the story, that sometimes um, Myla would just kind of retreat, and she would just stay at home and not go out. And uh, that went up when she was working on the book, talking to one of Myla's friends, was visiting her, and they were going to go out for a walk or whatever, and they came outside, and Maya looks around, and she said, oh, it's spring. I guess it's time for me to change my pants. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what's really sad about that, too, is that I happen to, I'm a huge horror film fan, and I actually produce a horror film convention called Scaricon, and I've been doing that since 2011. And since I started it, this, this Comic-Con slash horror convention market has exploded. And had, had it exploded a little bit sooner, she could have found herself at these events making a significant amount of money for her autograph and pictures and those types of things. And she probably would have uh, lived her later years in, in real comfort, which she didn't get a chance to do. Yeah, yeah. Because yes, you know she's you know she's somebody that that everybody would want to shake a hand and get a picture with. There's no no question about it. Um, tragic tragic figure, and I would recommend to anyone who really isn't familiar with what we're talking about, just go on YouTube and search for Vampira's footage. You'll see what she did there, and then also um, check out Plan Nine from Outer Space and or the movie Ed Wood, which also portrays her in there um, a little bit too. Portrayed by oh, what's the actress's name? Lisa Marie. Yeah. Um. Let's move on to some of some of your books. I want to start talk with uh, talking about uh, "She's a Rebel," the history of women in rock and roll. Um, this is really interesting to me because I often think, as you kind of pointed out, every once in a while people remember, "Oh yeah, there's women in rock and roll too," and this, you know, big deal is made of it, and then it seems to you know the attention seems to go elsewhere. But um, let's start. You mentioned this was your breakthrough book, kind of 1992. Was it the first book you wrote? Yeah, yeah. Let's, Very first. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, how it was different for women to ascend in rock and roll. You know, when we think about the introduction of rock and roll, we know it was a little more complicated than this. But the, the you know, the Cinderella story is Elvis Presley appearing, you know, walking into a record studio, Sun Records in Memphis and recording That's All Right, Mama. And, you know, next thing you know, he's a rock star. Yeah, yeah. How did, it, how did it differ for, for women? Yeah, you know, one thing, <laughs> this isn't about women, but I was thinking about this recently, cause I guess because I was interviewed for some things on Elvis, some programs on Elvis. And, you know, that moment you mentioned, this is just something interesting to consider. So Elvis was there on, on July 4th working with Sam Phillips. at It was then the Memphis Recording Studio. And they were recording ballads, because that's what Elvis liked. And then during the break, uh, Elvis just started cutting up by playing That's All Right in this kind of fast, funny way. It's a bluesier song. It doesn't go like Elvis did it. And Scotty and Bill join in, and uh, that made Sam Phillips' ears prick up and go, hmm, what's that you're doing? Oh, we don't know. We're just fooling around. Okay, we'll stop and start again, and let's see what this is. And I was thinking, what if that hadn't been Sam Phillips there? They, they yeah. weren't recording it. They were just having fun. You know, some other producer might say, oh, yeah, okay, that's fun. Okay, let's get, now back, get to work. back to work. Yeah. And that moment's gone. Wow. You know, <laughs> just just little things like that. Um, well, I guess one thing for um, one thing that would be different for women then, and I don't know, maybe to a degree even now. You know, they weren't encouraged to pick up instruments in the same way as right. as men did. You know, you you always saw the guys pick up the instruments, and women women couldn't play, or they were told they couldn't play, and or you didn't think of of playing. Um, 
Wanda Jackson was was certainly an exception to that. But you know, even then there were standards that uh, you had to adhere to. And she was on on the Grand Old Opry one time, and she was wearing a dress that they said was just too risque, and she couldn't perform wearing that dress. So they made her wear a coat over this dress, which really upset her <laughs> because her mother made her dresses for her. So, so this obviously grated against her. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so you had that kind of thing. They were they were seen primarily as as vocalists, and I guess perhaps seen more as performers, and and not the creators. You know, they weren't the songwriters. They weren't um, the musicians. Uh, it, it was more just just a performing thing, and um, it it is harder to find women instrumentalists from the fifties. I mean, I mean, certainly there's a few. We mentioned, uh, just mentioned Lana Jackson and um, Lady Bo, who played with Bo Diddley. But it, it, it wasn't the usual thing. And, and in the 60s, as, as rock began to take off, you know, you never really think of women playing electric guitars. They're always playing acoustic guitars. Right. And a lot of times solo. You know, Joan, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, um, up front with their acoustic guitars. You had there wasn't quite the range of performers. I don't think you know you could be the acoustic good girl or the pop girl, and that was pretty much it until Janice came along. Janice Joplin, kind mm-hmm. of uh, shattering those, give those us, boundaries. Give us just a point of reference. Um, obviously, you know you know this topic inside and out. I have some experience with it, especially having been in radio for so many years. However, a lot of people might not really be able to put this in context. Who were the popular female artists of the late 50s into the 60s? They may not have been rock and roll artists, but they were the popular artists of the time. Well, you can think of someone like Rosemary Clooney. Mm-hmm. She had lots of big hits. You know, I grew up listening to those hits. And and they really fascinated me as a child. She had, she. You think of the slower things that she did that were that were hits, but um, she also did things like "Come On to My House" and "This Old House" that were really kind of rocking, and "Mambo Italiano," odd, strange things. I especially like "Come On to My House" as a child. Uh, you know, there's so many words in that song, and the underlying meaning just escaped me completely as a you know seven or eight year old. Mm-hmm. But here. But here, it just seemed, wow, you go to this house, and she gives you all this stuff. She gives you birthday cake and Easter egg and Christmas tree. Um, and the chorus, you know, I'm going to give you everything. I didn't really think about that. I thought, wow, you get all this great stuff. So I love that song. Patsy Cline, that was another one. Yeah. Um, things started getting hipper when Motown came along in 1960, late 50s. I think maybe Tamla started before the Motown label. It was all one company, and they had the subsidiaries. But that's when, you know, you get people like, um, well, Mary Wells. And, of course, the Supremes come along in the early 60s. Huge. They were, they were probably the biggest uh, female group um, in the country once they started getting hits. Uh, you, you had the whole girl group sound of that era. Here's where you had some, some more women in behind the scenes, because you had the great songwriting teams of, of Goffin and King, Jerry Goffin and Carol King of course went on to her own success later but you had the girl group sound would be things like uh the crystals or the shirelles with will you still love me tomorrow um the do ron ron I think that was the crystals uh be my baby by the runettes leader of the pack by the shangri-las that kind of thing yeah 
It's it's really fascinating to hear those names and those titles. Uh, one thing that that is interesting as well is we know that when Elvis hit the scene, you know, parents were appalled by what they were seeing in many cases. And when he appeared on Ed Sullivan, they could only shoot him from the waist up. You know, there's these all this talk about him being Elvis the pelvis and he was gyrating <laughs> and it was so sexual and and little girls were, you know, were were going crazy because of the the sex did did women have the same scrutiny i mean you mentioned uh the coat you know having to wear the coat but in general was it was it were they looked at the same way or didn't they cross those lines like elvis did well well first i have to say myla had a had a great line about elvis whom she said she had an affair with they met in las vegas and uh that she told sandra from the way he moved those hips I thought I was going to get a symphony, but he turned out to be Johnny One Note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't think a woman could have been as wild as Elvis uh, by any means. Um, certainly the Motown artists, they were sent to the equivalent of charm school. Yeah. So they would know how to, you know, get into and out of a car if you're a girl because you're wearing a skirt. And, uh, you know, basic manners, things like that. Of course, in their case, it was also because they were black and they wanted to move into white society. And so you're going to be judged for that as well. So you really have to be on your toes. And they were very concerned with making a good impression. So, no, I don't, I can't really so think of any. Does, let me ask this then, and, and I may be, you know, blacking out on a lot of uh, history here, um, but it, for, just trying to search my memory, it seems like maybe Madonna was the first really racy uh, female artist to hit mainstream. Is that true? Well, I think, I think Janis Joplin. Um, not so much in revealing dress, because she didn't wear revealing clothes necessarily, but uh, she certainly was the most uninhibited yeah. female performer, white female performer, that anyone had seen in rock. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the transitions here. You mentioned Motown, and, and as, you know, again, you went through that, and I think back through those artists and that music, that seemed to be a very, very important time for women in, in rock. It really seemed to, uh, I don't know, maybe open up uh, ears and eyes to what women can do in that, in that genre. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I think, and especially um, the, the other girl group songs in particular were, were dealing with adolescent female concerns. I mean, Will You Love Me Tomorrow is, is a pretty bold statement, really. That's uh, true. You know, she's basically saying, will you respect me in the morning <laughs> type right. of thing, but yes. saying it in a prettier, more romantic kind of way. Uh, so, you know, these were songs of heartbreak and um, also kind of songs of rebellion. Like you think of uh, He's a Rebel and Leader of the Pack about, about falling for the bad boy. Uh, the, the girl knows that down deep he really has this good side to him and he shouldn't be ostracized. So they're rebelling against their parents and their friends by, by getting together with the bad boy. So, you know, you had, you had these little, they, they were very dramatic, these songs. Um, and yes, just sort of pulsating with, with energy. Uh, which is the song is that he's a fine, fo oh, not too young to get married. I remember talking to Darlene Love about that. And uh, <laughs> I said, just the kind of, you know, frantic demands in 
in the fade out as they're singing, we're not too young to get married. She's going, yeah, you know why they want to get married. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, the Beatles come uh, on the scene. They, you know, they, they fly to America. They take America by storm. It changes not just pop music, but pop culture forever. Uh, how did it change women in rock and roll? Was there any sp- sp- obvious or noted change in the way women presented themselves after the Beatles changed music? Well, in in one sense, and this is something I don't see people comment on that much, but I think I think the Beatles really established the idea that if you're going to be taken seriously as a musician, as a rock musician anyway, that you have to write your own song. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I've said that for so many years that I thought that was one of the most important contributions the Beatles made. Yeah, I mean, in a way that may even supersede the music and the influence that had, uh, which was tremendous as well. But I I think the idea of um, writing your own material kind of, you know, it broadens it, makes it broader. So so at that point, you know, we get into kind of the psychedelic years, um, more of the, 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 the San Francisco sound. You've got groups like the Mamas and the Papas coming on the scene. You've got Jefferson Airplane at the time. Um, you know, so there seemed to be quite a stark turn in pop music in general. But who would you say the female artists that shined most during that era were? Did I just mention them? Um, during that late era, like late 60s? Yeah, you know, yeah, you get into 60, you know, 66 to 70, something in that, that span. I mean, you mentioned Janis Joplin, of course. You know, she. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she might be the she might be the biggest one. Grace Slick also in Jefferson Airplane. I mean, she wrote the the two big hits right. that the group's known for: "Somebody to Love" and "White Rabbit." Um, some others were kind of percolating underneath. I mean, you have Tina Turner, but I realized in in writing about Janis recently that it took a while for mainstream for the mainstream to realize who Tina Turner was, because I was watching this clip of Janice on the Dick Cavett show, and he's asking her who she listens to, and he she mentions Tina Turner, and he's not that familiar with who she is. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this must be about 68. So, you know, certainly they were huge in the, in the R&B community, and uh, Janice loved that, and uh, maybe she saw him at the Fillmore, you know, that'd be the kind of act that would play at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Right. Um, so I guess Tina's moment in the in the mainstream spotlight was still to come. And then, you know, as as you get into the early 70s, there's a point there where you kind of have these bad girls of rock and roll showing up, right? The bad girls. Yeah, maybe like Lita Ford and, you know. Oh, oh Joan... later later on. I was thinking of early early 70s. Yeah, later on, but they kind of they kind of, you know, leather black leather wearing whatever um kind of changed it as well. They were they were really hard rockers if if uh memory serves me. Yeah, you know, that's the runaways and um just kind of on the just right before punk takes off in in the UK and then bounces back over here. Yeah, um, and things were also going on in New York as well. Other uh, runways that were, you know, are a bit before that. They, you know, they weren't very well known at the time. They didn't really um, get the big record. Maybe their influence is known more because, yeah. yeah, they, they, even though they were kind of, you know, heavily, heavily managed by uh, Kim Fowley. There's an excellent book on them by Evelyn McDonald that came out a couple years ago on the Runaways, delves into that story quite 
a rather complicated story. But, um, yeah, so you had them on the West Coast, and then at that time, on the East Coast, you know, Patti Smith is, is getting her thing together, and Debbie Harry is working with the early version of Blondie. Oh, yeah. Blondie from my home, where, well, not my hometown, but where I live now, Cooperstown, New York, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, and what about, I mean, another name comes to mind here is Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, that whole that was part of the whole California, yeah. Laurel Canyon, Laurel Canyon scene. Great for um, Her and Joni Mitchell again, and... Um, well, no, Bonnie Ray got bigger later, didn't she? Yeah, she, she was kind of blend in. She'd yeah, been around for so long. Yeah, so yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. She had a breakthrough with the give them something to talk about or something back, you know, in the eighties. There, um, if okay, so if Elvis Presley is the king of rock and roll, who, in your estimation, is the queen of rock and roll? Wow, hmm, hmm, who would the queen be? The big queen up there. I don't know. I guess I keep going back to Janice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is an amazing clip of um, her singing with Tom Jones on his program. Oh, wow. Um, is that Raise Your Hand? It might be Raise Your Hand. Uh, but she sang one song solo on his show. I think it was just called the Tom Jones Show. And one show with him, or one song with him. And it's just amazing. The clip's on YouTube. And you're thinking, why didn't they make an album together? <laughs> wow. I have to check that out. So I haven't seen it too. So let's let's move on because we. I want to get through. Uh, I want to talk about the Elvis book and also your Nirvana book. Um, and we don't have a whole lot of time left. So, um, Return of the King. Let's talk about Elvis's comeback. Um, what was Elvis Presley's career like? We've touched on his name a few times already tonight. What was what was going on in his career as the '60s were coming to a close? You know, you look at all the music that Elvis made in his career, and you just have to think he had one of the strangest careers of any singer because the music he does is just all over the map. You know, there's not one style, uh, a great variety in the quantity of songs. Uh, Elvis started out very well. You know, he broke through in the 50s and was massively popular, and I'd say massively influential. Uh, he drove so many people to pick up instruments. I mean, the Beatles say that. Yeah. They were playing skiffle, and then they saw Elvis, and they're like, oh, that's what I want to do. And many other rockers in Britain and America felt the same. And I put a lot of this down to his manager, uh, Colonel Parker, who at the time Elvis was drafted didn't get him into, say, a special services type of deal, which apparently he was offered, where he wouldn't have to be a regular soldier, but he would still serve for the two years and perhaps go around to recruiting centers and encourage other people or do things that sometimes they would have entertainers do when they were in the service. Uh, but, but Parker said, no, you, have to, you should do it as a regular soldier. It'll be good for your image. Um, and it, it was good for mainstreaming his image, but I think his, you know, his period of as an influential performer was over by then. Uh, he did manage to come back successfully at first. He comes out of the service after being in it for two years and has some very popular movies. There's G.I. Blues and Blue Hawaii, even more successful. Um, but then things kind of start decaying because Parker thought it would be uh, uh, more profitable to just have him making movies instead of going out touring and making records for that. 
Instead, he would make movies, and the movies were always musicals, so they would have a soundtrack, and the soundtrack promoted the movie, and the movie promoted the soundtrack. So it was a great cross-promotion you had there. And his main concern was just churning these movies out, two or three a year. And what really astonishes me now is that, you know, he didn't ask for any kind of script control or script approval, which that to, to, to this day that still amazes it's me. crazy. He was such a valuable property, and it wouldn't have been unusual for a star of his caliber to have the manager say, well, we need to see this script. You know, no one would have thought twice about that. It would be expected. That's right. But, nope, he just, you know, what, what's the advance for this movie, and this, this is the share of the profits we'll get. So by shifting um, the focus from doing a quality product to just getting the money out, things just began deteriorating over time. Um, the movies, it's not like the movies start out well and then they went down. It was sort of up and down and up and down, and some are better than others. Like Viva Las Vegas uh, is entertaining to watch because he has such a great chemistry with Anne Margaret. Right. But something like uh, Kiss and Cousins, where he plays <laughs> twins, uh, actually, I think that's almost like a parody of an Elvis movie, so I kind of enjoy that one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, what's, oh, Tickle Me, I just, oh, uh, yeah. the most embarrassing film title ever. So Elvis was losing his credibility because he was in these movies with these insipid songs that he himself hated. And in the meantime, you look at what's happening in rock and roll. You mentioned the Beatles, and then along comes Bob Dylan, and all these artists are trying to outdo each other. And, well, I'm going to beat what he does. So, you know, the Stones come out with stuff, and... uh the Beach Boys, and um, you, the Motown acts, and Aretha Franklin comes along, and Janice. You know, it's an astonishingly creative period, and he's sitting on the sidelines doing things like yoga is as yoga does. Oh, that's a painful one. Do the um, clam. <laughs> so um, the movies were starting to be less profitable, and so Parker knew they had to do something. And so they made, he made a deal uh, where, with a company where they would produce a movie, but they'd also do a TV special. And this is what started turning things around, because they got some good people in to work on the special, particularly the director, Steve Bender, who was a young man who was not afraid. Well, as he told me, he said, you know, I wasn't afraid of being fired from this position. He just laid it on the line for Elvis and said, you know, your career is in a rut. And uh, do you have the guts to go out there and really push for yourself? We can do a special, and uh, everything could turn around for you. It might not work. You know, it's a gamble. It is a gamble, but you'll get instant results. The next day you'll know whether you pulled it off or not. And um, Elvis knew his career was in trouble. I mean, it, it, he wasn't stupid. He knew all this, what we're saying. He bought probably all those records we've just been talking about. Because he... We know now he, has his fa he had a fantastic record collection, so he was aware of what was going on. But he just seemed incapable of, say, standing up for himself against Parker as far as his career, saying, no, I don't want to sign another movie contract. You know, let's get things going in a different direction. It really had to, it really had to the circumstances had to come to him. He couldn't shape the circumstances, which is unfortunate. Is that, is that partly uh, because here you have... Uh, you know, uh, I mean, at this point, you have to we have to remember something. He was 30 in 1965, so he was still a young man. 
And the biggest part of his success was when he was in his 20s, a young, young man. And not like the Beatles where they had each other to kind of bounce things off and, and, and kind of figure things out as a, as a group. Elvis was alone, and you know he, he came from very humble beginnings. His parents were very humble people. Um, they kind of didn't have the, maybe the, uh, the business acumen to kind of navigate this stuff. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree with that totally. And I think, um, I think also he was just so isolated. I mean, not just as as you say, being alone. I was I was just reading a thing where I saw a Ringo Starr quote, and he said how he always felt sorry for Elvis because he was alone. Yeah. Whereas you know I had the other Beatles, and it makes me think of a another quote from John Lennon where he, in the Rolling Stone interviews, where he was talking about the mid-60s in London, and he said, oh, that was a great period. It was like we were uh, kings of the jungle then, and we'd go out and we'd go to clubs and meet up with the Stones and stay up all night talking about music and listening to records and that sort of thing. And I've thought, I've thought this many times, you know, that's what Elvis should have been doing, uh, talking with other musicians and performers like himself, uh, just to you know, keep his hands on the pulse of what was going on, finding out how other artists do these things. Instead, he was uh, surrounded by the Memphis Mafia boys, yeah. his buddies and pals who were not performers and couldn't couldn't completely relate to what he was going through. And they were yes men. Yeah, they, uh, and you know they they were just all kind of cloistered. Now we know we know a lot of the damage that Colonel Tom Parker did. Um, and if if you're listening to the program, you're not familiar with that um, his his agent Colonel Tom Parker made some very questionable decisions for Elvis regarding his career. But was was Parker also responsible for keeping Elvis isolated from these other musicians, or was that just Elvis's own decision? You know, it may have been a bit of both. I mean, um, I, I know in the fifties, uh, Leeper and Stoller who wrote so many songs that Elvis did, like Hound Dog, uh, though they didn't write that for him, but they wrote Jailhouse Rock. And um, they wanted to, uh, they had an idea for, I think it was a musical version of Walk on the Wild Side. And one night in, they were in L.A., they, they were talking to him and saying, you know, we should do this as a musical, and we'll write the songs, and you'll be in it, and we'll get these other people in it, etc. And uh, they were called on the carpet uh, by that, for El- by Elvis's publisher. Uh, who said, you know, you don't talk to our client about projects like that. So some of it came from outside. Yeah, and wasn't part of that um, Colonel Tom Parker, and uh, forgive me, I don't have the details here, but I know there was something to do with the publishing rights. And again, this is the people that write the songs also get, uh, and I'm explaining this to the audience, also get a, a, a part of the royalties for the music. And so Colonel Tom Parker wanted all the songwriting to come from a certain place. Was it a, was it a publishing company that he set up? So, yeah. So it was, that um, all the well, royalties. I think it was already set up. It was called Hill and Rain. Yeah. And they just, they signed with them as publishers. So if Elvis recorded one of your songs, you had to give up some of your publishing. That's right. Uh, and um, in so the 50s, lot- that worked out okay. And people didn't mind doing that. Like Otis Blackwell, that's why some of those songs came out with an Elvis Presley credit on it. He had nothing to do with it, but Otis didn't mind because, you know, that was a number one hit and sold millions of copies. But in the 60s, when Elvis's record sales are going down, then um, good songwriters are less anxious to cut that kind of deal. Yeah. I, I mean, mean th- that's why he didn't, that's why they wanted him to cut... Um, and I will always love you, the Dolly Parton song. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't give up her publishing, mm-hmm. so he didn't record it. 
that almost happened with suspicious minds in this late period we're talking about, which Chip's moment had written and had been recorded before and had not done that well. And the producer, Chips, thought, you know, I think Elvis could do a good good um, job of this song. Um, and, and, and then it almost didn't get out because uh, they said, oh, no, no, you had to clear publishing. And Chips wasn't going to give any up. And um, they, they said, well, then we, won't re- then we can't release the song. And Chips just called their bluff. That's fine, you know. We won't, we won't cut the song. We, the song has been cut. And what are you going to do? They backed down eventually. But, you know, there, there were moments like that. He was um, tied into this to where he could only record songs that Hill and Range could get the publishing on. So that limited him. And um, I think that there were probably other instances of, I've heard stories that some of the Memphis Mafia would report back to Colonel Parker about, oh, he's seen such and such. Uh, he's talking to so-and-so. Wow. So, the, the one time Colonel did get really involved was when Elvis was uh, studying a lot of, we'd call it New Age-type philosophies now. And uh, Colonel shoved that fellow, Larry Geller, out of the group for a number of years because of that. So there was some control going on, yeah. He was a prisoner of, of his own life. Um, so anyway, so we're on the precipice of this comeback special, the TV special, which I think is a is, is a maybe the highlight of Elvis's career in many ways. The iconic images of Elvis in that black leather suit on stage with nothing more than a skeleton band, just showing how powerful his voice and his presence is and was at that time, um, really established him as uh, you know the greatest single performer of all time in my estimation but he didn't he he didn't have that confidence going into that TV special no and even before doing those shows uh which was fascinating to learn from from the director Steve Binder um he had seen Elvis and his guys rehearsing or not rehearsing even just hanging out in the dressing room playing songs and bantering and making jokes and he thought I want to get that in the show and so he persuaded Elvis and the colonel to do this, have this set up. The first one, they call it the sit-down show because they're all sitting down. Elvis with Scotty and DJ and, uh, who was it? Oh, Charlie Hodge, uh, just sitting with him in, in sort of, it looks like a boxing ring. And, uh, gosh, I've, I've talked to people that attended that show, and, and it, it just sounds like it was, was so electric. And I think in part because Elvis was very nervous, and at the last moment he didn't want to go out. He told Steve, I, you know, I can't go out there. This is after the audience is already in. Wow. And Steve just begged him. And he said, you know, Elvis, you are going out there. If you want to go out and sit down and say, well, sorry, folks, good night, and leave, go ahead and do that, but you are going out there. But then once he got out there and started singing, he became very comfortable. You could tell his nerves, though, if you see the unedited performance, mm-hmm. which is out now in one of the boxes, and they have both of the sit-down and both of the stand-up. And in the sit-down, uh, especially the first one, he's just kind of, he does seem nervous, and, and he, he talks too fast in between and seems like he loses his place, and am I really going to say this or not? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's a riveting performance. It is. And then, um, you know, the, the, I think the special closes with a song, which is one of my favorites, If I Can Dream. Oh, I love that. Where he's in the white, uh, the white suit singing, and it's almost gospel-esque. And uh, was, that the, was that the final number of the special? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's how he closed it, and it's phenomenal. And what happens to Elvis's career after that? Well, for a while, it, it's in the ascent again. I mean, I think Elvis always needed to have a challenge 
to face. Otherwise, he would get into a rut. And now he was now he was finally having a challenge. He had this special where he was given good work to do, and you know he really rose to the occasion. So next he goes in to make a new record, and they decide to record in Memphis again for the first time since the 50s and work with Chip's Moment at American Sound, where they'd been doing lots of hits. They were working with Dusty Springfield and Neil Diamond, and, and the musicians there were just, like, playing on hit after hit. And, and again, they, uh, they got some good material in and uh, guys there that were willing to stand up to, to the suits. Uh, <laughs> and and he turned out some good, some great songs, some more classics. That's where we get Suspicious Minds and Kentucky Rain oh, yeah. and In the Ghetto. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which you know, some some of his in his group suggested he not record that because it was too controversial. Um, and if anyone's familiar with the song, you know, it, it it's pretty mild social commentary, really. <laughs> but yes, oh, should you be making any kind of statement there, Elvis? Um, yeah. I love this. Chips had said, "Well, if you don't record it, we're going to have. I can give it to Rosie Greer, the football player, who was also a uh, sometime singer." So, okay, okay, I'll do it then. <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, and then he returns to live performance uh, before before an audience um, in Las Vegas. And that first season again, it just sounds pretty phenomenal. But you know, I've talked to Peter Garalnik, who wrote these excellent biographies of Elvis. And he said, oh, yes, I thought maybe he gradually loses interest in playing in Vegas. But I think by the time he went back next year, it had already lost a little of the luster and mm-hmm. was getting a little boring for him. But um, certainly I'd say 69, 70 were good years. And uh, he was getting hit records, good reviews, good shows. Then, yeah, it was almost, to me, it, it, it seems like the movies or the tours kind of became like the movies and just became this yep. other rut that he sank into. I think maybe the last challenge was the um, Aloha from Hawaii show in 73, where he again dieted, and he looks pretty good in that special. Yeah. So I don't think he's quite as engaged as he was in 68. And that that broadcast was billed as the largest television audience ever or something along those lines. It was broadcast via, via satellite all around the world, and it was, that was quite a success as well. That was, yeah. But, you know, those claims about the viewing numbers are really exaggerated. And there, there was a great um, website. I should send you this link because, yeah, I have an email for you. That, um, it's one of the Elvis websites from Australia. They have, they have two pretty good ones down there. And they researched it. They researched it. And, you know, they like to say, oh, over a billion people watch. Right. Uh, well, they didn't. Well, for one thing, it didn't air all around the world that night. It aired in just a select number of countries, mostly Pacific Rim countries. And then um, was seen on delayed broadcast for the next couple of months. Like in the U.S., I don't think we saw it until April. And they also kind of edited it. After the show, Elvis recorded a couple other numbers with the band, and they inserted them in the program. Why? I'm not sure. Hmm. You know, you have a concert. Why do you need to add this other stuff? Right. But that's what they did, maybe just to give a different flavor or something. But, but so this article went through and identified all the countries where it had aired and uh, figured out how many people likely watched. And just, yeah, that figure was pretty exaggerated. Um, 
but still, I mean, it, it's still a a historic event nonetheless. It's I mean, hard. there weren't even many, there weren't that many live broadcasts that were going out at that time. Right. It's hard to believe that from that point in, uh, you said 73, that it was only four years later that he was grossly overweight um, and died in such tra- tragic uh, circumstances. Uh, that was only a span of four years. Yeah, yeah. The, the health just seemed to go, yeah, he just seemed to go downhill health-wise. And, and you could see it in his performance. I mean, that, um, you know, there was another TV special, and it, it's pretty sad to watch. I don't know if, if they'll ever release that one officially. Um, mm-hmm. They filmed it in uh, the summer that he died. They filmed two different shows, and, uh, but they didn't air it until after he died. And one thing when you watch it is you notice how they have so many non-performing shots I guess because not all the performance footage they got was that great. So they have more crowd shots and interviews and that kind of thing. It just looks like they're padding out the program. Is that the one where um, he's, he's forgetting a lot of the words uh, to the songs? And I, yeah, and, yeah. And he sings, um, uh, are, are You Lonesome Tonight? Yeah, he forgets that one. And, then he, and he also sings My Way. I mean, that's where the live shots of him singing My Way, which kind of became uh, more uh, interesting because he died so shortly after. I think that came from that. Um, let's move on because we only have a few more minutes with you, and I want to talk about Nirvana <laughs> a little bit. I could talk about Elvis. I could talk about any of these topics all night. Um, talk about Nirvana. Why was Nirvana such an important uh, force musically and culturally? Well, I think one thing that happens with with artists, it's not just about how good you are. It's also your timing. You know, I think that was a big factor for, well, the people we mentioned, Elvis and the Beatles, certainly, and Nirvana, it it was also the timing. Things just came together for them at that moment. You know, the band had been together for a couple years, but it wasn't until they got the last drummer, Dave Grohl, that suddenly everything fell into place, and then they took off. Um, I think, you know, oddly enough, at the time of of their big explosion, it, it made me think of Tracy Chapman's. Uh, breakthrough with Fast Car, which people said that came on the radio and they just stopped because it was like nothing else you heard that was on the radio at that time. And Nirvana had that same thing. Uh, it was just, it was not like anything else that was on the radio. And um, this wasn't something manufactured by the studio. This was authentic and they got to that point just, you know, through working. It was like an organic type of development and success. And because of that, people related to them in such a way that I think, you know, it inspired people to make music themselves. I, you know, in a way similar to these other people we've mentioned, the Beatles and Elvis. They, they, people could tell there was an authenticity. There wasn't anything um, uh, manufactured about it. And I think, you know, I think they responded to that. Also, they had um, of what I like to call the big four, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Yeah. I think Nirvana had the strongest pop sensibility because they, the, the hits they had in particular, you know, they have really strong hooks in them. I think that first Pearl Jam album was equal to that, but I don't think Pearl Jam was able to follow it up the way Nirvana was able to improve with time. Personal opinion. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I've always been more, you know, that's that's the modern-day equivalent of Beatles or Stones. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nirvana or Pearl Jam. You know, when I first heard Nirvana, and I'm, I'm in addition to being a radio guy oh. and someone who loves the Beatles, the Stones, Elvis, you know, this classic rock stuff, I'm also a musician. I play guitar and bass, and I've been in bands all my life. And when I first heard Nirvana, I'm, th- I'm listening to it, and it fascinated me because I'm like, those chords don't work together. What are you doing? That doesn't work right, <laughs> but it sounds amazing. How is this happening? <laughs> it was so different. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that side of it. I mean, if you listen to the chord progressions, they're very unusual. They're very, uh, I don't know what the word would be, I guess just non-traditional. Um, but uh, Kurt Cobain made it work. That band made it work really well. Um, you know, in addition to the way they produced the music, it was it was quite amazing. Was Kurt Cobain the person that he presented himself to be through his music or did he have, you know, some people put a stage presence on, or did we see the real Kurt Cobain through that? Well, well, uh, well, I would say, well, what kind of image do you think he presented as? I know he's kind of a, uh, obviously a rebel, but kind of also a, a brooder, um, you know, maybe, maybe almost, almost suffering from depression and those kind of things, which he used his music to as therapy. I don't know if it was this. Heard him say it was therapy, so I don't know how he thought about that. I mean, certainly there was there was depression in him, and that, but there was also that the the burning drive. And uh, I would say, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really a stage image. You know, in his in his suicide note, he sort of writes about that being doesn't want to be caught up in the image. Feels like he's faking it if he's not having a good time performing. But but um. You know, there there was a wryness and an intelligence, but a sense of humor too, and pretty self-deprecating. People kind of missed that in the in a lot of the grunge music, thinking it was all angst and depression, which is there. But then, you know, there's also a lot of jokes in there. Um, <clears throat> I'm you you can only teen spirit is you know obvious sarcasm in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> Very self-deprecating, which which helps. Now you um, you are I don't know if you're still in Seattle, but you're from Seattle, right? Mm. Let's it, see. Well, I or lived not there. technically. I I lived in Arizona and California before coming up here. But I came up here with my parents as a young age. Okay, so were so you were you then? It's just did I you, wasn't born and bred here. Were you aware of Nirvana? Were you aware of Nirvana I've been locally? Been here a long time. Yes. Were, were you in the sad changes? <laughs> were you aware of Nirvana? when they were just a local or a regional act before they hit it big? Yeah, because I was at The Rocket, which was the local music publication. In fact, I reviewed this um, uh, compilation set, Sub Pop 200, that Sub Pop put out, and an early Nirvana track is on that. I think, what, like the... Well, they put a single, so this would have been the third song that they released. (laughs) Bank through. But I didn't like it, so I didn't mention it in the review. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're already over time here, so I have to ask you to close this part of our conversation out. You know, there is a lot of controversy surrounding his death. Um, you know, there's been films like uh, Soaked in Bleach and others uh, that have addressed his relationship with Courtney Love. Uh, and I don't know if you want to say anything publicly, but do you have an opinion on whether or not it truly was a, a suicide as it was reported, or do you have doubts? No, I have no doubts. I've always, I've always felt it was a suicide. 
And I've just never been much of a conspiracy-minded person in general. So actually, when people mention conspiracy, you know, my eyes start to roll a bit. And I, oh, is that the time? I guess I got to be moving, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, no, would you, I, would you, I had, Would you admit, though, that there are some questions that remain? Not really. Okay. Um, I don't really, yeah, I don't really, it, it just seems so clear-cut. And I, I think don't, if he had not been a famous person, you know, people would never say anything like. If it was the exact same circumstances with a non-famous person, you know, I don't think there would be any questions. Wasn't there something about the way that the gun was that it, he couldn't have done manipulated it himself? I, again, I'm just now I'm just out of memory because I don't remember this conversation too well. But I did watch one of those documentaries. Any, any? Do you remember anything? I think I think that's the one time I heard that, and I'd like to hear that again or hear more yeah, about it yeah. i mean the police explained it away so yeah yeah well um you know it's, he's part of the 27 club janice was in the 27 club right jim morrison i mean jimmy hendrix don't they amy all amy winehouse amy Winehouse. it's amazing amazing and it's so strange unto itself but um Jillian, this has been a fantastic discussion. I loved every second of it. And like I said, each one of these little topics could have filled a whole show and more. So I appreciate you coming on. Where can people find your books? Um, well, let's see. Uh, there, there is Amazon. But, um, you know, I also like to uh, say you should support your local booksellers. Uh, you can, you know, look up the titles and then a good bookseller will be able to, should be able to order it for you. I know in Seattle we have a great shop called Elliott Bay Books. In Portland, Oregon, they have the famous Powell's. Everyone out there will, from all your Oregon listeners will know what I mean when I say that. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend um, ordering there. And what about um, like following you, what, social media or website, any place you'd have people go to follow your work? Well, I have a page on Facebook that's called Jillian Gar Writer. And that's just, you know, I guess it's like a fan page and where you, that you can choose to like or, or not. Um, you know, it's not a thing with friends where it has to be accepted or anything like that. And I post links to all the stories I write that are online somewhere and other things if there's a reading or, or something. But, but stuff, because I didn't want to clutter up my own, my, my personal page with all that stuff all the time. Right. Uh, so that's on Facebook. And that's, and, uh, that's your name, Jillian Gar Writer. Yes, writer. And um, I share some of that on my Twitter account, which I think is just at Julian Gar. I don't think there's anything clever in there. Um, and I don't have an Instagram because I just couldn't face having three social media <laughs> accounts. I'm trying to resist that one. You know, you, then you have to maintain them and oh, post things crazy. all the time. I and I thought, I don't want to do it in three places. <laughs> Isn't I, this I, enough? <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. I, I barely touch Facebook anymore. I'm so sick of it all. But either way, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to be with us tonight. It was it was fantastic to hear about your work and your insight into all of this. And, and I hope you'll agree to come back sometime. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you know, say, oh, we've run out of time. And I was going to say, well, I'll just have to come on again. That's perfect. Again, <laughs> thanks for being here, Jillian. Great to talk yeah. to you. Okay. Great. Right. Thanks. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards, 
Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.